I've entitled this today, The Power of Choice. The Power of Choice. Now, God has created us with the ability to make choices. Some would call it free will. I know there are some segments of Christendom who bristle at the term, at the idea of free will. They say, well, the will of an unregenerate person is not free, it's in bondage. Yeah, yeah, I get that. What we mean by free will is you can make choices in life. Okay, you can make choices in life. Now, you can't argue that because every time you go to a restaurant, there's a menu. And on the menu, you have choices that you're going to make. As a matter of fact, you can even pick something. And if you change your mind in time, you can pick something else. Now, that's a matter of choice, isn't it? You have the ability to choose. And then you've got people who believe, uh, well, the Calvinists believe, no, you don't have any choice. God ordains everything, and you just kind of go along with what he has decided. Man does not have free will. And by the way, a Calvinist doesn't believe you have free will either before or after you're saved because they believe once you're saved, if you're saved, once you're saved, then you will automatically persevere in the faith and you will live a faithful life because if you don't, then it proves you're never saved to begin with. And then you've got people, very well-meaning, many Baptists who believe, no, 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 you have free will. It's whosoever will may come. But then they think once you get saved, you lose it. Not your salvation, but your free will. And so, yeah, anybody can be saved. It's up to you whether you're going to be saved or lost. But once you're saved, you're automatically going to serve Christ. All of a sudden, now your will has been overridden by God, and you will serve the Lord. You will be faithful. You will live a godly life. And if you don't, then of course, then they really what they do is they borrow that from Calvin is what they do. And that is not true. No, here's the truth of it, folks. God has created us with the ability to make choices. And I believe this is one of the greatest gifts God has given us as people because he did not make us robots. He wants us to love him. He wants us to respect him and serve him and respond to him properly. But for us to respond to him properly as he created us, we have to have the ability to not respond to him. You see, if there's no choice, there is no issue of heart desire and so forth in the sense of, oh, I love the Lord, okay, or I want to serve the Lord. And if it's automatic that you're going to serve Christ, then why is there a judgment seat of Christ where we are going to be rewarded according to what we've done? It just doesn't make sense. No, God has made us, created us with a free will, and we can make choices. Now, we can make good choices, And unfortunately, we can also make bad choices. We can accept him and his ways or reject him and his ways. One late theologian said this. He says, whoever is on God's side, and by the way, this is critical to get this morning. Understand. Whoever is on God's side is on the winning side and cannot lose. Whoever is on the other side is on the losing side and cannot win. Here there is no chance, no gamble. There is freedom to choose which side we shall be on, but no freedom to negotiate the results of the choices once they are made. By the mercy of God, we may repent a wrong choice and alter the consequences by making a new and right choice. Beyond that, we cannot go. So we are limited as far as the results, but we're not limited as far as the choices, the decisions that we make. 
And that's something we need to understand. Now, today we are going to focus on four men who exercised their ability to make choices, and they made their choices in different ways, and the importance of the choices they made we are going to look at. All four of the people we are looking at are believers. All four of them are Christians. All four of them had trusted Christ as their Savior. And can I go even a little further? All four of them knew each other. They knew each other. Now that's significant. Let's look at it. Number one, the Apostle Paul. You might say, well, that would fit, seeing he wrote 2 Timothy. Yes, it would fit. Paul the Apostle, verse 6. We know the context of 2 Timothy. Paul is waiting to die. He's on death row. He's in a Roman prison. He's basically, not completely, but basically deserted by people. Luke is with him, as we will find, but here's the Apostle Paul. He's lived his life. It says in verse 6, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, that's a reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. What a champion for Christ he was. What a champion he was. Seven years earlier, I want you to see this. Hold your place and look with me to Acts chapter 20. Seven years earlier, he said something when he was meeting for the last time with the elders from the church at Ephesus. And uh, he was in Miletus, he called them down, or they came down to see him, and he met with them, and it was a very sweet, important, powerful time of fellowship with them. Tears were shed, hugs were done, okay? But Paul talking to them says this in Acts 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me. He was told as he continued on serving Christ, there was trouble up ahead for him. There was going to be difficulty in his life. He said, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Sound familiar? And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now you go back to 2 Timothy in chapter 4, and you notice in verse 7, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. So what he planned to do in Acts chapter 20, seven years later, he continued doing the will of God. And seven years later, he could say, I finished my course. What I set out to do, I have done. Let me ask you, Christian, what about you? How's it going? More about that later. He chose a plan of commitment and he held to it. From the day, by the way, from the day, Paul trusted Christ as his Savior, he served the Lord faithfully. No turning back from the day he got saved. No back and forth, no flipping and no flopping, back and forth, back and forth, of the world, not of the world, of the world, not of the world. This was not the way he lived his life. When he got saved, he said, it's all for Christ. Why do I say that? When he got saved, he immediately said in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And God told him, and that's what he did. Now we look at him and we have such admiration for the apostle Paul, and rightfully so, but why do we so admire him? Well, we admire him because he did what he was supposed to do. It's really not complicated. Now, I didn't say it was easy, 
But he did what he was supposed to do. And as we see him here in 2 Timothy, he's about to die for his faith. I can't prove this, but I believe there must have been great satisfaction for him in the fact that he had spent his life as a believer proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world. He knew he had invested his life for good, for that which is profitable, for that which was mattered. He wasn't chasing after money. He wasn't chasing after notoriety, although he had it for sure. I'm sure some people called him infamous who didn't like him. He wasn't chasing after anything, but to hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is what his life was about. His life was given to proclaiming the gospel, and this is the greatest investment of time that there is. Think about it. Think about it. If you're going to spend your life on anything, young people, listen, you know, they talk about you today. They talk about the young people, the, the high schoolers, the, the college kids, the young adults. And they say, boy, these people, you know, they're just looking for a purpose. They, once they get a purpose that they think is worthwhile, man, they jump in with both feet and they take off. All right, let me challenge you with this. What can you tell me that is of greater importance and value as a purpose than sharing the gospel with lost people? What can you tell me? You can't tell me anything, and that's true for anybody else. If heaven is real and hell is real, and everybody's going to go to one or the other and spend forever there, you can't tell me you've got a more important purpose in life than that. Learn. Learn all you can, okay? Go to Bible college. Get, get trained, okay? Learn to share the gospel, okay? You can learn it here, wherever it is. Just understand what could be greater, a greater purpose for your life. Well, I want to be a millionaire before I'm 30. I've heard people say that. Why? Why? It's carnal. That's a carnal purpose. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Do thy diligence to come to me shortly, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. The second person we see in our list here is Demas. We find him in verse 10. Whereas Paul, now some people don't know what to do with Demas, because he contradicts their theology. So they'll say things about him that are not right doctrinally, because They don't know what else to do with them. We see Demas. Whereas Paul eagerly lived for the Lord out of love for him, Demas ended up loving the world instead. He was saved, but what did he do? He loved the world instead of loving the Lord and his purpose. Demas had been a faithful missionary and a follower of the Lord, but now he was deeply in love with the world's system. And he was as deeply in love with the world system as you could be deeply in love. It says, having love, the word love there, there's several Greek words for love in the Bible. This is agape love. This is the highest form of love that there is. See, Demas knew what was right. Demas had a solid past. Demas had used his life for Christ. He was a believer. He knew what it was to serve the Lord. He had gone on mission journeys with the apostle Paul and with Luke and John Mark. He understood that, but something got to him to where he, whether it was the difficulties or whether there was some 
person or thing that got to his thinking to where he defected as a believer. Having loved this present world, that's an interesting point. Demas was living for the here and now. The word present often is translated as now in the New Testament. Having loved this now world, Paul was living for the next world. Demas was living for this world. What a contrast. But you see, folks, this is the power of choice. God does not put a gun to your head. He does not say, you must. Now listen, if we as his children serve him, there will be blessings and reward. If we don't serve them, he will chasten us. How he does that means he will discipline his children. How he does that, that's completely up to him. When he does it, that's completely up to him. By the way, that means it's not up to you. It's not up to you to make a judgment on when's God going to step in. Be concerned about yourself on this. The father knows exactly what he's doing with his kids. Why'd you do that to me? You didn't do it to him. That's not fair. Okay, you got a stinky attitude. I'm going to do a little bit more to you. Oh, no, I'm not. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Sorry, you're dealing with somebody who reads your mind, who knows your heart. You can't hide it. See, we can trick people, but we can't trick God. It's the power of choice. You can choose whatever direction you want to go, but you can't choose the results of the choices you make. Boy, we need to hear this. See, there's an important point here, folks. It is sadly possible for a Christian to fall away and no longer live for the Lord. They're still saved? Yes, they're still saved. But they have backslidden. They're what we call a backslider. They slide backwards instead of going forward in their Christian life. They slide backward, okay? Have you ever been uh, on a, uh, one of those people movers at the airport? I love those things. There's these long stretches. You know, they make the concourses. They keep making them longer and longer. By the way, don't you find it interesting that usually your connecting flight is on the other side of the airport? It's not like you get off and you just get into the next little area. No, anyway. But they got these, they got these people movers, and these people movers, you know, you're walking, you're walking along and you're just walking and saying, boy, this is a, you know, this, we're going down here, we're on our way. And then they got this people mover and you can get on there and it's like a flat escalator is what it is. And you can get on there. And so you come up to it and you're, you're kind of walking like this and you step on and all of a sudden you go flying. It's kind of nice, actually. Sort of like you lose 60, 70 pounds and there you go. But you know what's interesting about those? And this would be something a kid would do. None of us adults would ever do this. Go the opposite direction on one of them. And by the way, if you're quick enough and strong enough, you can do that, listen, for a while. But what the problem is, as soon as you stop going forward, you quickly start going backward. And that's exactly what can happen in the life of a Christian. If we are not going forward, we are going to go backward. You might say, now I just want to be still. There is no such thing. We're either going forward or we're going backward. And that is a matter of choice and obedience. Nowhere does it say Demas lost his salvation. There's good reason for that. (laughs) You can't lose your salvation. Once you have it, you're eternally secured. Has it ever occurred to you that while carnal Christians fall in love with the world, the world hates Christianity? 
may say, I'm a Christian. But, oh, but I love the world. I, I want to live according to the world. Yeah, but you know what? The world hates you. You think they're going to love you? No, they hate what you stand for. They hate your faith. That's the way the world system is. You might say, well, I, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, I can maybe change your thinking around. Look with me to John chapter 15. See, Jesus understands how things are. He experienced it firsthand. This is what happens, folks. Christians fall away. They backslide. They defect in a sense. They're still saved, but they defect. They let the world gobble them up. They go pursue the stuff of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We'll get to that in just a minute. And so they pursue that and they think, well, you know what? I'm going to find a wonderful place here if I pursue the things of the world. No, you're not. The world hates Jesus Christ. He said it himself in John 15, 19. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's why 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, John the Apostle writes, love not the world. That's exactly what Demas started doing. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you're not walking in fellowship with Christ. You can't love the Lord, love the world at the same time, is what he's talking about here. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, which is sin, the lust of the eyes, which is sin, the pride of life, which is sin, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. So the Lord says, don't love the world. Don't go with the world. Don't be impressed with the world. Don't follow the music of the world. Don't follow the trends of the world. Don't follow the philosophy of the world. We're Christians. We should follow the Savior of the world. One man said, it is only as we are occupied with Christ himself that we are set free from the love of the world. That's insightful because somewhere along the line, Demas got used to the Christian life and he stopped being occupied with Jesus Christ. And when he did, the world just seemed that much more attractive to him and he fell away. It's a pitiful statement that we see here. Hey, listen, folks, don't be a Demas. Many believers have fallen by the wayside and are no longer living their lives for the one who saved them from hell. They're living a carnal life. They're out in the world. They're getting gobbled up by it. They're enslaved by it. They don't know what to do. They're, they didn't know it was going to be that way. It looked so great. It was so tantalizing. The temptation was great. And so they took it in and they jumped in and the world just consumes them. And now they're in the bondage of that. Don't be a Demas. Our third man is Luke. He intrigues me. Second Timothy 4 verse 11, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Now this is on the heels of him saying, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica. Verse 11 then, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. We'll get to him in a minute. Luke, his name means light or luminous. Isn't that interesting? He was a man of science. He was a doctor. Luke was an intelligent man. By the way, when you read his gospel and you read the book of Acts, you see he's got a different angle. He's got a knack. He talks a lot in his work 
the details of healings and so forth and those kind of things. He would do that. God allowed that. God used Luke to pen down the word of God. Luke lived up to his name in that he penned, he gave a lot of light is what I'm saying. He penned more of the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. I said, well, he only wrote two books. Yeah, but they comprise 27 to 28% of the New Testament. Think about it. Over a quarter of the New Testament is written by Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. Acts is almost like the Gospel of Luke part two, in a sense. Now, this is interesting. Luke had been very close to Demas for many years. We know from the book of Acts that they traveled with Paul together with Paul. I'm sure they shared many meals together, many difficult situations, many joyous situations. So here's Paul, committed, lived his life to the end faithfully. Here's Demas, committed, but something got him sidetracked and he went off into the world. The same situation, Luke faced the same situation as Demas did, but Luke stayed on track. Luke and Demas and Paul were all close friends who served the Lord together. Colossians 4.14, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. That's Paul talking to the church at Colossae. Luke and Demas greet you. Interesting. In Philemon chapter 1 and verse 24, it says, Marcus, which is Mark here in 2 Timothy. We'll get to him in a minute. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Lucas, which is Luke, my fellow laborers. Paul called them all his fellow laborers. They ran together. But what we see in 2 Timothy is that Luke made the right choice. He was the only one left there to be with Paul. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I can't prove this, but just to put a little bit more flesh on the character here, just food for thought. That's all I'm asking, food for thought. Wouldn't you think if Luke was a physician, wouldn't you think that when God brought Luke into Paul's life, maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons Luke came into Paul's life was to help him physically as they went on their journeys. With all the persecution and all the pain that Paul lived with, in my mind, it'd be hard for me to not believe that Luke was not at times helping him, cleaning wounds, helping him feel better try this. Okay, let me do this and and all that. Keeping him, kind of being there for him as sort of a team physician for the Apostle Paul. I can't prove that, but it makes sense to me if he was a doctor. Isn't that interesting? God would send a doctor to run with Paul on those difficult journeys. But Luke made the right choice, and he was the only one left there with Paul. But Paul had an interesting request, and here you go, number four. The fourth person we're going to look at is this man, Mark. Mark. Paul says, Timothy, when you come, I want Mark to come with you. Look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, if you track Mark, John Mark, Marcus, If you track him through the Bible, through the New Testament, you find that he was the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark had deserted Paul on the first missionary journey back in Acts chapter 13. 
Paul and Barnabas and Mark were together. They were on this first missionary journey, and John Mark decided he was turning back, and he went back. He went back home. On the next journey that they went on, his cousin Barnabas wanted to take him again, but Paul refused to take John Mark. And the friction between Barnabas and Paul became so great that Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul went ahead and got Silas and took him with him on the next journey. Very interesting. When the time comes, Paul says, no, I can't risk this. The last time he failed, he's not going with me. Well, then he's going with me. Okay. God bless you guys. Hope you have a great journey, but he's not coming with me. But here is Paul at the end of his life, and he says, bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me for ministry. What happened? What changed his mind? Well, I believe we have a strong clue in the gospel of Mark chapter 8 and also chapter 10. And I want you to go there with me. Hold your place here. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 10. See, when Paul said, no more, he's not going with me, I believe when he defected, when he left that first missionary journey, I believe he lacked the commitment it takes to live for Christ and the gospel. I don't think John Mark had it in him. I don't think, I think the, the missionary journey was, he was looking too much at the journey and not enough at the task at hand of what needed to be done. And I just don't think he had the courage to do it, the steadfastness to do it. See, folks, true discipleship, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about living for Christ. True discipleship is something public, not just private. You cannot live for Christ and be private about it. You have to be public with your faith if you're going to live for Christ. You can be saved and not be public about it, but you can't be a disciple of Christ and not be public about it. Now, here in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34... Mark is giving, this is his gospel, by the way, he wrote a gospel, and Mark is giving his account of some of the words of Jesus, and I want you to see this. It says, and when he, Jesus, had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Remember that phrase there, for my sake and the gospels. Go with me to Mark chapter 10. By the way, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but understand this. Mark is the only gospel account that uses the phrase for my sake and the gospels. Well, why would he say, use the phrase, and the Gospels? Here's what I believe it was, because that's what missionary work was all about, proclaiming the Gospel. And God, the Holy Spirit, saw fit to let Mark record these. And these things Jesus said, that's why they're recorded here, okay? This is not make-believe. But Mark is the only Gospel account that records, for my sake, and the Gospels. In the other accounts, it says, for my sake. But here it's for my sake and 
the Gospels. Mark 10, 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the Gospels, but shall receive a hundredfold. See, the answer is found in 2 Timothy 4, 11. Paul's ministry was to do what? It was to preach the gospel to the world. Mark's values and life ministry, while at one point early in his ministry was not in sync with the apostle Paul, over time he grew into this and his purpose and life ministry became in complete harmony with Paul's. They meshed together. They became one. They were living for the same purpose. What was it? Christ and the gospel. Christ and the gospel. And I think the Holy Spirit says, okay, Mark, this is why you turned back that once. And the Lord didn't give up on Mark. He worked in his life to where Mark became the committed person he needed to. And God used them in a mighty way. See, a change took place. A choice was made, though. Somewhere along the line, when John Mark deserted and went back home, a change was made somewhere in his thinking to where he said, I know the choice I made and it was wrong. I'm now making this choice to go on from here and do what I'm supposed to do. And when he did that, and when he went on and lived that way, Paul started realizing, isn't it an interesting term? He says that he is profitable to me for the ministry. Well, Paul's ministry didn't change. Whose ministry changed? John Mark's. His view of ministry changed. I don't think I'm making too much of this. I think this is exactly what happened. Paul's ministry was to preach the gospel to the world. Mark's values in life ministry became like-minded with Paul And that is why he became profitable to Paul for the ministry. See, folks, success is not made up of past victories, but present faithfulness. Present faithfulness. You can't live in the past. We we can do that as we get older. You find that very common. As people get older, they start slowing down. What they think about Christianity, they think in terms of something that happened in the past. Oh, do you remember this took place in church? Do you remember this victory that we had? Remember that victory? And you know what? Praise God for all of that. But if that's all you think about, you're becoming stale. You're stopping. And remember, there's no such thing as being still that way. You're either going forward or backward. I want to challenge all of us who are getting older, okay? That's 35 and above, Don't live in the past. It's okay to remember things, but that's not where the success is. The success is faithfulness today. If we live to be faithful to the Lord today, and we do that every day, then that will, in the end, make up a life of fruitfulness and meaning and success. That's what Paul did. We see his fiery commitment in Acts chapter 20, talking to the Ephesian elders, He says, I want to finish my course with joy. Seven years later, he says, I finished my course. I've kept the faith. He didn't give up. Even though, from our standards of today, most of us would say, you know what? You spent enough time doing this. Go do something a little easier. Here's the point. Looking at all these four men, all of these individuals mentioned had the same opportunities 
and the same choices they needed to make. Some chose to go in the right direction, and some, one in particular, chose to go in the wrong direction, and one of them went in the wrong direction for a while. One chose to go in the wrong direction, John Mark. He turned, though, and turned around and started going in the right direction. You know, this speaks to every one of us in this room. If you're saved, it speaks to every one of us. You may be on track right now. Maybe you're using your life, you're investing it for Christ and the gospel. See, the thing I love so much about what Mark puts in his gospel, we say for Christ. Okay, we live for Christ. Well, that's great. What does that mean? In everyday black and white practical terms, what does that mean? You can be a Christian and say, oh, I, just li- I live for the Lord. I love the Lord. I live for the Lord. What does that mean? Is your life goal in harmony with God's life goal for you? Christ and the gospel is the way it's supposed to be. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Choices are to be made. All of us need to make them. All of us. So we can have past success and we can rejoice in that. And we can be thrilled about that. And, and you know what? I love it when I see I've done something or... God's used me in some way, and I hear about it, and somebody's been blessed and all that. Listen, I'm, I'm not trying to deceive. I, I love that. I'm encouraged by that. It's a blessing to me. That's great. But you know what? Today, I could start falling away. Today. Because nobody is immune to that. And you can end in disaster. I said, well, that kind of troubles me. Pastor, I don't like hearing that about you. Listen, I'm not planning on doing that. I want to keep going. As I've said many times, I want to die with my boots on, okay? But here's the point. Don't worry about me. What about you? We all need to individually have this use of our free will, this ability to choose, and we need to use and make our choices wisely what we do with our lives. Because life is going to be over more quickly than you could ever imagine. Joshua 24, 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. By the way, that's the world. Don't live for the gods of this world and serve the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose. You see it? Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, which is the Jordan River, or the gods of the Amorites, false gods, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Christian, the choice is ever before us. Past success is not the issue. It's present faithfulness that's the issue. Don't live in the past. Can't be undone one way or another. But we've got time in front of us. Now, here's the point. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. The most important choice you can make as a human being is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Friend, eternity awaits. When you die, you will spend forever either in heaven or in hell. Heaven or hell. There's no in-between. Purgatory is a myth. It's been made up by religion. It's based on works for salvation. Purgatory basically is, well, you're not good enough to get into heaven at this point, but you're not bad enough to end up in hell. 
So we'll kind of put you in the oven for a while and purify you some, and then you can go to heaven. Of course, no one knows the times of this, and of course, there's a reason for that because it's not biblical, it's not in the Bible, it's not true. But God says this, you have a choice in front of you. You can either put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior or reject him as your Savior. If you put your faith in him as your Savior, he'll give you everlasting life. If you reject him as your Savior and you die in that condition, you're going to be lost forever with no second chances. No second chances. You might say, I'd like to go to heaven. Okay, let me explain it to you, how you can be sure. This hand right here. Let's pretend that this is you and me. We're going to let this wallet represent all the things we do wrong. God calls them sins. God loves us. The Bible says he hates our sin, but he loves us. You see, sin separates us from him. You can't go to heaven with even one sin. Not even one. Heaven's a perfect place. No sin in heaven. You have to be sinless to get into heaven. Completely rid, forgiven of your sin. We're sinners. God not only says we're sinners, but he says our sin must be paid for. We have sinned against him, and there's a penalty that goes along with it, and it is called death. The wages of sin is death. Death means separation from him. When you die physically, you're separated from your body. When you die spiritually, you're separated from God for all eternity. Okay? If you die with your sin, you'll be separated from God for all eternity. That means you can never go to heaven. You'll spend forever in hell. That's what the Bible says. God doesn't want that for you or me. So what did he do? He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Because there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. People say, well, what about good works? I'll, I'll be good. I'll try to behave. I'll, I'll mean business with God. I'll turn from all my sin. You can try any of those things. You can't do any of them perfectly. None of those things will save you. We're not saved by works. What does the scripture say? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, if the best I could do, which is good works, will not take away my sin, then what am I going to do? God says this, because I love you so much, I have a solution for you. I'll send my son, this hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into the world, and when he went to the cross, the sinless son of God, he took our sin upon himself. He died as a substitute for us. He paid for it, so we don't have to. He did all the work, paid for our sin, was buried, came back from the dead. And he says, if you will put your faith in him, he will give you everlasting life. He'll forgive you of all your sin. You become his child that very moment. You have a home in heaven reserved for you. Romans 5 verse 8, it says this, but God commendeth his love toward us in that, notice this, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. God doesn't say, well, look, you're a sinner. Clean up your life and I'll consider saving you. No, God says this. You're a sinner. You can't do anything for yourself. You can't save yourself. But I'm sending my son to die for you while you're a sinner. Jesus came. He paid the price, rose from the grave. And he says, if you will believe or put your faith in him that he did that for you, he'll give you everlasting life. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. When you trust Christ, God's wrath is no longer hanging over you because 
the penalty for sin has been paid. And when you trust Christ, now you have peace with God. God gives you eternal life. You become one in Christ. You're eternally secure in Christ. You can't lose it no matter what. Friend, listen, don't be a Demas, but even if you were a Demas, you can't lose your salvation once you had it, okay? Demas remains saved. The Bible doesn't tell us whether he ever got on track again or not. I will assume he did not, but I don't know that. But here's the point. How you live your life is not the issue when it comes to going to heaven or not. It's whether you'll trust Christ as your payment for sin. So I urge you to trust in him today and he'll give you eternal life. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.